want the Republicans to wake up is... The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. As your pronouncer told you, this program is supported by listeners, and I'm ever grateful. I'm going to name three right now. Dan Blick, Margaret Anderson, and Rita Sheldrake. They are monthly subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show, and it's voluntary. The show is free, but if you want to support it, just go to my website and click on You Can Help, and you can sign up for a subscription for as little as $5 a month. Every dollar helps, and I appreciate it. And speaking of money, money in politics is a big corrupting influence. And here in California, we're trying to experiment with fair elections funded by taxpayers instead of fat cats and corporate interests. California, uh, California Assembly member Tom Amiona. I got to get that right. Tom Amiano is going to be joining us in the next segment. And we're also going to talk with Trent Lang, who is the director of the fair elections effort here in California. But first, we're going to take on a very serious and somewhat heavy subject. And I put it to you this way. Would you work for an organization that tolerates sexual harassment of the women in the workforce at the rate of 80%, 8 out of 10? And would you work in a place where women experienced rape at the rate of 30%. You would probably say, no way. And what are you dreaming of? Where, where is there a place on this earth that tolerates that kind of behavior? I'm sorry to say the answer is the United States military. And one of the people who's been leading the charge to expose these issues and try to to make the military safer for women in uniform is Colonel Ann Wright. She served 29 years active and reserved in the U.S. Army, and then she joined the diplomatic corps, and uh, in principle, or as a matter of principle, she resigned her position in March of 2003 in opposition to the war on Iraq. And since then, she's been active with Code Pink for Peace. She's been arrested many times in the capital. And uh, most recently, we talked to her from Egypt, where she was helping coordinate the uh, Gaza Freedom March at the end of 2009. Colonel Wright is uh, at a rare, <laughs> a rare break in her activism at home in Hawaii, and she joins us today. Ann Wright, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Well, thank you, Peter B. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
Well, and uh, I, I have great uh, respect for the work you do and the conscience that you offer. And what we're going to talk about here today is difficult. It's, it's hard to talk about. It's hard for people to listen to. And it is largely unreported in the American media, even though the information is out there. And the statistics that I tried to get people's attention with in my opening comments here came from a survey of female veterans going all the way back to Vietnam. So this is not an issue that is, is recent, that is a result of, uh, you know, troops in a Muslim country uh, where, you know, there, there aren't uh, other outlets for pent-up sexuality. This is a pervasive, long-term problem in the U.S. military. And, and when you began serving uh, years ago, uh, you were probably one of the early women to put on a uniform and serve beside a mostly male uh, uh, population in the military. Were you subjected to uh, comments, catcalls, or physical sexual abuse? Well, I, I joined up in the military in 1967, and at that time, uh, by congressional mandate, less than 1% of military forces could be composed of women. Yeah. Um, and now it's, it's up to, in some, some of the services, 17 and 18%. And you're exactly right. When I was in, uh, there, there were very few women. Although over, over time, I mean, from World War II, there were hundreds of thousands of women that had joined up during World War II in the Women's Auxiliary Corps. But then after the war, uh, it went back to a rather small number of women there. I myself was never, thank God, subjected to uh, physical. I was never sexually assaulted. I was never raped. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly the issue of sexual harassment was always there. I mean, there were always uh, comments. There were this, that, and the other thing. Uh, uh, and it, for women in the military, it, it almost you, you just kind of accept that probably that's going to happen. The, the issue of of comments, uh, because it's you know still a, a, a very conservative, aggressive uh, uh, male institution. Uh, however, this whole issue of whether or not an institution allows people to commit criminal acts on others and doesn't hold people responsible. And that's really where we're, we're talking right there. Is, uh, on all other types of violent crimes, the military really prosecutes people. But on the issue of sexual assault and rape, the prosecution rates are laughable. Less than 8% of the people that are uh, the cases are brought against, the, the cases really go to court. And that's in, in opposition to, in civilian life, over 40% of the cases go to court. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, I want to direct people, there'll be a link uh, in the show information on my website to this article that you published at Common Dreams on February 15th of this year, and it talks about this uh, defense task force on sexual assault that was set up by Donald Rumsfeld and took three full years to uh, get composed and actually start its work. And that shows, I think, uh, the level of contempt that the male-dominated hierarchy has for these critical issues of facing women who serve. Um, and it, it strikes me, too, that in the current environment, when there is all this focus, and I'm glad that President Obama is moving to lift the ban of the so-called Don't Ask, Don't Tell compromise on gays serving openly in the military. And in that discussion, uh, we're hearing a lot of uh, Bible-thumping and uh, a kind of phony morality coming from particularly Southern senators, who uh, focus on their fear of homosexuals. And I have not heard a single comment 
either in the testimony or the, the comments from, from elected officials or in the reporting about uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, about the rampant sexual harassment and sexual abuse, mostly by heterosexuals, that is tolerated in the military today. And yet they imagine that if gays are permitted to serve openly, that somehow this is going to uh, compromise them and subject heterosexuals to unwanted sexual advances from gays. And, uh, you know, this this whole mentality, it, it just really bugs me, Ann. Well, indeed, and, and to get back to the earlier point you were making on this issue of this, this, the task force that was set up uh, on sexual assault, it was supposed the Congress ordered that it be set up in 2005. However, it did not form. Members were not named for over three years. Its first meeting was held in August of 2008. And, in fact, most people didn't even know that this, this task force was to be set up, even though the Department of Defense had put some staff people in, in a position should it ever have been established, uh, but it just wasn't established until finally the Congress had a, had a hearing in uh, August of, well, July of uh, 2008, where they called in the director of the, the Department of Defense Office of Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, uh, a woman by the name of Kay Whit, uh, Whitby, and uh, Whittlesley, pardon me, and uh, uh, they subpoenaed her to come and testify of why this task force had been set up. Well, what fireworks there were on the day of this congressional hearing. I happened to be there, and it was unbelievable when uh, Congressman John Tierney, uh, who was heading the subcommittee on uh, foreign affairs and military issues for the House Government Oversight Committee, which was the one that had called it. It wasn't even the Armed Services Committee that had called this hearing. Well, Tierney was furious when it turned out that, that Kay Whittlesey didn't even show up for the, the hearing, that, in, that instead her boss, an undersecretary of defense for personnel and this and that and the other thing, showed up saying, I'm sorry, I told Whittlesey she should not be here. Well, the Congress dismissed this guy, uh, Dominguez, uh, saying, you get out of here and you bring back Whittlesey because we want to find out from her uh, what why this task force hasn't been uh, convened. Mm -hmm. Well, very quickly thereafter, it was convened, and to its credit, it has uh, done a lot of fast work. Uh, last year and a half, it, it's gone to many military bases and has published a 170-page uh, report, which I then wrote about in this article that came out on Common Dreams. But the point you also made in the article is uh, during the time that they were dithering, that as many as 6,000 members of the service, men and women, were sexually assaulted or raped. Well, that's right. Uh, every year there's well over 2,000 men and women in our, our services uh, that are uh, sexually assaulted or raped. We don't know many how many because the, the task force report even said that the Department of Defense statistics are, um, let's see, how was it, misleading, invalid, inaccurate, I mean, every, every term you can think of to challenge the Department of Defense figures was actually put in the report by the, by the task force. So we really don't have a, a good understanding of, of what, uh, how many rates there are. And we know from civilian life as well as military life that most people don't even report being raped, um, particularly in the military because they know they're not going to get any help from the system. Uh, so we don't know the full extent of it, but we do know it is, uh, it is a great horrific 
criminal act that is being perpetrated on thousands of our own military every single year. And there are uh, many atrocious anecdotes of women who did report that they were raped, and not only did the perpetrator, uh, uh, you know, face no significant punishment, but they were then marked women, marked as sluts, and treated with contempt, uh, often assigned to, uh, uh, you know, uh, demeaning duties or menial tasks. And when, when you see that play out time and time again, the pervasiveness of it is, is something that's really hard to take because, uh, you know, you can imagine isolated incidents occurring. But the widespread uh, uh, nature of this and the kind of tolerance of the abuse of authority, the, uh, the use of military authority to force a, a subordinate to submit sexually, whether it's a male or female, and it does happen to males, um, th- these are, are true crimes. And they affect, uh, uh, coming back again to this language that's used in the don't ask, don't tell debate, uh, it affects unit cohesion. It affects the readiness of these units to uh, go into combat, because if they have seething uh, bitterness about interpersonal relationships that, that degraded to rape or to, uh, you know, repeated sexual uh, uh, harassment and abuse... Uh, they certainly can't function. And, and these, these are much more critical issues uh, than whether gays serve openly in uh, the rank and file of our military. Well, that's exactly right. The issue of leadership in our military is, is the critical part of it. You know, the military prides itself on good leadership, you know, being able to motivate people to do things that they never thought they would could or would do, and much of it has to do with very violent acts of killing other people, but supposedly under the authority and order of your own government, that you are killing on behalf of your government, just not a gratuitous killing uh, by, uh, by your own decision. Um, that leadership uh, capacity is, is really important, uh, and it's important on these issues, sexual harassment and, and uh, uh investigation and prosecution of criminal acts of rape and sexual assault. And we're finding that the leadership co- uh, capability is, uh, is not there on these subjects, uh, that uh, so many times uh, when women bring to their commanding officer the fact that Sergeant so-and-so in the chain of command is the, is the one who raped me, that the woman is told, oh, gosh, you can't report this because, you know, Sergeant so-and-so, he's, uh, he's been in the military 10 years. He's been... You know, he's, he's got a wife, he's got kids, and this is his career. You can't, you can't press charges against him. And if they go ahead and do it, you know, they are, they are bucking up against the system in a way that uh, generally they don't win at all in, in bringing this forward. And the, the trauma it is for them, I mean, anybody that has been uh, sexually assaulted or raped, I mean, they, they face a lifetime of, of, of post-traumatic stress. You know, the military is dealing with a lot of things, post-traumatic stress from combat and people who have it compounded where they have been sexually assaulted and raped and they've been in combat. Our Veterans Administration has, has uh, various programs, and in fact, I was just talking with the VA here in Honolulu yesterday about uh, what types of programs they have here, and uh, one of the 
counselors that I was talking to said, you know, it just it is very, very difficult because these people are coming back uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan with horrific problems uh, in the mental capacity to deal with what they've done. And then we have mostly women but some men that are coming back with having been sexually assaulted. And they are, uh, it, it, is, it is tremendously difficult to get them to, to be able to work through both of these extraordinarily uh, uh, difficult mental and physical things so that they can, they can look forward to a life that uh, um, hopefully can be enjoyable in some way. Uh, but it, it, you know, I was just uh, watching uh, as I was doing some exercises on TV, it, there was another little blurb that said now the Army now is saying that the year 2000, the fiscal year 2010, which started in October of 2009, that now the record for suicides in the Army is uh, on, on track to be the highest number of suicides ever recorded for the Army. And that just shows that the difficulty of coping with all of these things that uh, these men and women are undergoing. And, and uh, to add to that, again, this is anecdotal information, but it is stacking up in a pretty compelling way that males who are returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly those who served multiple tours, are having terrific adjustment problems, and it's resulted in uh, a spike in domestic violence, a measurable spike in divorces, and some really gruesome cases of uh, brutal murders of wives and girlfriends uh, by these returning veterans. And it, it seems that we're not really, as a society willing to face these issues and really try to work for honest solutions uh, and and respecting that there's terrific damage to both the victim and the perpetrator in these crimes. Well, that's right. And here in Hawaii, uh, right now up at uh, Schofield Barracks, the home of the 25th Infantry Division, uh, there's a court-martial that's going on for a young man who... Um, murdered uh, two civilian contractors in Iraq. Uh, and the, in the court testimony yesterday, it came out that this kid had, uh, uh, or his defense attorneys are saying that he had some, size, some type of psychotic episode that had actually started a day and a half before, where he really was not, he, he didn't really know where he was. He was, you know, this is the story, but it, it sounds very logical because there are so many people who, and, and this was like the third time this guy had been in, in Iraq, that uh, he just he went into one of these psychotic episodes and ended up just murdering two, two civilians that gave him a ride. Uh, the issue of domestic violence is, is horrific, too. In fact, next week here in Honolulu, I'm going to be giving a talk on um, violence against women in our military community where I'll talk about not only violence against women in the military and sexual assault and rape, but also the issue of domestic violence and divorce within the military families, and also the issue of uh, sexual assault and of uh, women contractors that work for big contracting firms uh, for the Department of Defense. You know, we've had uh, Jamie Lee Jones, a young woman that worked for KBR, one of the subsidiaries of Halliburton, who was... horrifically raped, uh, along with 25 other women that we know of that have worked for KBR and Halliburton that have been been raped uh, during their work. So it's not, 
you know, it's an environment within the whole military system, whether it's active duty people or contractors that seem to have this idea that you can get away uh, with, uh, with rape. And Anne, you sent me uh, an article that was published at Alternate last October by Penny Coleman, and this likewise will be linked uh, in the show file at peterbcollins.com. It's entitled, Does Military Service Turn Young Men Into Sexual Predators? And this is where uh, I got the citation of the 30% of women have been raped, uh, reported uh, raped, uh, not just in recent years, but from Vietnam through the Gulf War. That doesn't even include Iraq and Afghanistan. And she goes back in time and traces the history uh, after World War II. Uh, American GIs were widely accused of rape in France and in Germany. And uh, we have seen many problems with uh, overseas posted soldiers in Okinawa over the years. So this is not a recent problem. This is really deeply rooted in the military culture. Well, it's true. And that's what is so discouraging about this is that we've known about uh, uh, specific incidents over time uh, but, you know, we really have never gotten the full data of how pre- pre- prevalent this is until the VA started actually asking every single veteran as they now come in for any sort of medical service, they are asked, have you ever been sexually assaulted or raped while you've been in the military? And that's where the, now the data is coming from. People now being asked, are starting to say, well, yes, I was, but I've never really told anyone about it. And, in fact, I was speaking with the, the VA here in uh, Honolulu yesterday, and, and the woman I was speaking with said, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that the first time we ask that question that people go ahead and acknowledge what's happened to them, that this is a huge step for people who've been living with these assaults, uh, with these rapes for years and years and never telling anyone about it and not getting any sort of help. And then finally, they kind of break down and say, well, I, you know, here I am, maybe 50 or 60 or 70 years old, and maybe I should go ahead and try to get some treatment for this. Yeah. And in this same article, she cites recent figures. In 2008, the Pentagon received more than 2,900 sexual assault reports involving active duty service members, a 9% increase from 07, a 26% increase in combat zones. Almost a third of those reports involved rape, and more than half involved aggravated sexual assault. And she goes on to report that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, only 10% of these complaints led to a court-martial. The rest received minor punishments. Almost half were just dismissed out of hand. And the report acknowledged that 90% of sexual assaults are never reported to begin with in the military. And one more factoid... Rape occurs almost twice as frequently in the military as it does among civilians, especially in wartime. These are, are very, very serious figures. Oh, they are serious. And another interesting thing that, that uh, Penny had in her article was the, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, service members who are actually imprisoned. Over half of them are imprisoned for having been convicted of sexual assault or rape. Um, it's a huge, huge number uh, in terms of uh, the, 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 the crimes that are committed by servicemen, and uh, primarily servicemen. In fact, I haven't heard of any servicewomen that have been convicted for rape. Uh, but um, 
it's it's a, a remarkable when all of these statistics come together in one one report in one article that it really does kind of leave you shattered in a way that that this military institution that prides itself so much on on leadership and on uh, and, you know the well of being there to serve our country that mm-hmm. indeed the service that so many uh, men and women find themselves in is of being the recipients of criminal acts committed by their fellow soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen. And and the um, incidents that are reported of men who say that they have been raped, men serving in the military, this is a, a difficult issue to parse without more information. But um, one of my suspicions is that the perpetrators of these assaults are uh, men who are in denial, uh, like a Ted Haggard or a, a, a Larry Craig, uh, these people who engage in, in gay sex and then deny that they are gay. And this is critical now because of the current debate where uh, homophobes are advancing phony arguments that uh, gay men pose a risk to straight men in the military. And uh, tell me what you do know about uh, the cases that have been reported of male-on-male sexual assault. Well, as you say, we don't know a lot about it. It's uh, purposely uh, camouflaged by the military. This is one thing they do not want to have come out. Uh, It did start coming out in 2008, though, in one of the congressional hearings where Lieutenant General uh, Johnson, who was the Deputy Chief of Staff of Personnel for the Army, finally was asked by one of the congresspersons uh, after he'd given the statistics, general statistics of how many sexual assaults and rapes there were, um, finally one of the congresspersons said, well, does rape happen to military men? And there was there was silence in the room. And finally the lieutenant general said, yes, it does. And of the cases reported in 2007, and there was something like 23 or 400 at that point. 2,200. Um, uh, uh, of all rapes that had been reported, he said 10% of them were reported by men. So that's mm-hmm. about you know, 220 to 240 men that had... I mean, if you think it's hard for a woman to report that she's been raped uh, in the military, it, you can only imagine how difficult it is for a guy to say, to come forward to say, well, somebody jumped me in the shower or somebody jumped me the blanket party, uh, you know, in the, in the barracks. Um, but the, the, the cases that I have heard are, are not in any way connected with homosexual activity. Mm-hmm. It's not homosexuals that are raping other people. It's, it's heterosexuals who are, as rape is, it's a power game. It's, a, it's an assault on somebody else that may be weaker, and it's using sex as this way to humiliate them and to get your power over them. And that's what it is for women. When women are raped, that's what men are doing to them. And in the same way, it's what guys are doing to each other. So it's, it, to my knowledge, I, I have never heard of any, any instance where a, um, a person who, well, and, you know, with, uh, with the military saying that you can't say that you're a homosexual or you'd be kicked out. Right. Uh, but I've never heard any allegations that anyone was doing homosexual, I mean, that a person who was, gay that acknowledged they were gay was actually raping other men. Indeed. I've never heard of that. And let me, let me just, in the interest of accuracy, quote this to uh, get these figures correctly. In congressional testimony in the summer of 08, 
Lieutenant General Rochelle, the Army Chief of Personnel, reported the little-known statistic that 12%, or approximately 260, of reported 2,200 rapes in the military in 07 were reported by military men victims. So that, that is, uh, it's a 12% is, is not insignificant. And uh, this, again, is part of the, the culture of uh, power that is coupled with denial. And when these victims come forward, uh, they are treated worse than the perpetrators in many cases and either, you know, uh, demonized if they stay in the military or uh, drummed out in many cases. Well, that's right. The, the tragedy, double tragedy, is when w- women and men try to get assistance for these things that have happened to them, that their chain of command is uh, uh, not helpful at all. Uh, one of the, the recommendations in the, this task force that finally got appointed and did its work um, is that uh, the, you know, the commanders themselves uh, are part of the problem that they, uh, they don't know how to handle these, these cases or that and sometimes they do know how they want to handle them, which is to sweep them under the carpet and uh, make the life of the victim uh, miserable so that that person will get out of their unit or get out of the military. And how the military is going to resolve this is going to be a, a very important question in, in uh, how, you treat other, uh, how you treat people in our military. And commanders who refuse to uh, acknowledge that they've been, uh, they have done their servicemen and women wrong, uh, to me, they, I mean, we ought to have uh, in, in the chain of command, when any of these incidents happen, the commander ought to be called on the carpet, too, to, to be questioned about what is it in your unit that has made it so that uh, a guy felt like he could, he could get away with this stuff? And what is it you have to need change in the uh, the uh, how you handle your own unit to make sure that everybody knows that this is this is something that you're not going to put up with, and you're going to use the full force of the military code, uh, code of military justice to go after people who commit these criminal acts. And and finally, I wanted to give you an opportunity here to tell my listeners about uh, a powerful new website that has been set up in collaboration with uh, faculty and students at the University of California, San Marcos. And this is on the web. The, the link will also be in the show file. It's usmvaw.org, and that stands for U.S. Military Violence Against Women. And this is a website and blog. Uh, I've been there three or four times over the last few months, and I'm very impressed with the work that's being done here to collect this information and give people opportunities to understand it and comment on it. Well, yes, it is a, a very good website set up by students at the University of California at San Marcos. And it came about after I'd given a talk at San Marcos on the issue of sexual assault of, of uh, uh, women. And the focus was actually on uh, civilian women in Okinawa. I was talking to, uh, because San Marcos has a large Asian uh, student population, mm. they wanted me to talk about some of the research I'd done in, uh, on Okinawa. Um, about U.S. service members raping uh, women and girls there. And to the extent, you know, that that is one of the reasons why the Japanese government is, is uh, forcing the U.S. government to remove some of the Marines out of Okinawa. There's a big political, in, uh, international political incident that's going on right now where the new Japanese government is really holding the line with the 
uh, with the Obama administration saying, we want those Marines out of Okinawa, something that uh, um, the activist community in Okinawa has been uh, pushing for for years and years and years. Well, anyway, the, the, the students in San Marcos heard uh, my presentation and decided that they wanted to uh, learn more about it. They set up this website that not only collects information about uh, sexual violence uh, outside the United States uh, and out uh, and not well, uh, women in other parts of the world um, that are sexually assaulted by U.S. military, uh, but all but also covering um, the sexual assault of women on active duty. And the other part of it is on domestic violence within military families. So it's a it's uh, it's a lot of information because a violent organization like our military. Uh, unless it, it works hard to have this controlled violence, only violence directed at specific national security interests, not at people who are just around you. Mm-hmm. Until we get that under control, um, I, would, I would encourage um, people who are thinking about military service to really think twice about it, because they are getting involved in, in some things that they, they, if they need to go in with their wi- eyes wide open on this, because... And, Anne, I'm just looking at one of the posts here at the website I'm referencing, and it uh, talks about Al Franken, the new senator from Minnesota. Uh, he sponsored a bill that has be, been attached to the next military appropriations uh, bill that uh, basically doesn't allow companies like KBR to force female employees, uh, I imagine males as well, but uh, in the case that we've talked about, it was a female, uh, to sign in their their employment contract, sign away their rights to legally prosecute uh, someone who rapes them while they're working overseas for a contractor like KBR. And this seems like a no-brainer, but it is amazing, uh, again, to see some of the members of the Senate who find reasons to oppose this. And, uh, you know, it's a simple civil rights issue to me, uh, that that uh, it shouldn't be controversial in any way. Well, absolutely. And uh, the other thing that, that uh, now Congress is forcing Department of Defense to do is to actually keep statistics on the number of civilian contract women who are reporting that they've been sexually assaulted and raped. Before this, uh, the Department of Defense said, it's not our problem. These are the problems of those contractors, and we're not keeping track of it. Thank you very much. Well, now Congress has said, it is your problem. These guys work for you guys on these multi-billion dollar contracts, and you're going to keep track of it. So now we'll have to see whether DOD uh, has any better luck uh, than they've had with keeping track of how many women in the military are raped and assaulted. Yeah. Well, Anne, again, I want to thank you for uh, being a leader on this very important issue and uh, trying to bring it out of the shadows, out of denial, out of the, the power zone and into the realm of of civil rights, constitutional rights, and equality for women. And I think these are very important issues. I know it's tough for people to uh, really uh, connect with them and and deal with the extent of these problems, but that makes it even more imperative that we get them out in the open and that we force uh, disclosure first and then uh, resolution of these issues so that we can have a military workplace that is safe for women. Absolutely, and I want to thank you for being so kind to let us have an opportunity to talk about these so that your listeners will be able to 
to talk in their community. And if, if you have uh, service uh, uh, men and women or veterans that, that you know, um, talk to them about this. And uh, I can guarantee you, you're going to get a, a story that you will not believe. Ann Wright, it's always a pleasure, Colonel. Thanks for talking with me today, and we'll be in touch. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. Thank you. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. Are our politicians bought and paid for? With the campaign cash they raise, can they vote their conscience? Well, we're working on a solution here in California. Assemblyman Tom Amiano represents San Francisco. He served in the uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors, ran a nearly successful campaign for mayor a few years ago, and uh, has a background as a stand-up comic. So if he cracks you up, uh, that will explain it. Tom, how are you today? All right, fine. Thank you. Well, uh, tell us uh, what you have to do. You work out of a fairly safe district, and because of the way things are set up and uh, the districts are drawn currently in California, uh, you probably haven't had to raise millions of dollars. But every elected official spends way too much time raising money, and that process not only diverts your attention from your real job, but it compromises many legislators because uh, they listen more to the people who write the checks than the people who voted for them. It's, uh, it's and you're, you know, you're absolutely correct. And uh, what always used to upset me, you know, so-and-so is a good politician because they're a great fundraiser. Well, that should not be the standard. The standard should be, you know, what is your record on, on different policies that really are inclusive and that help people. And so, you know, I've never enjoyed... Uh, Standing the phone, so to speak. Uh, I am a little luckier than some, uh, but when I was on the board of uh, supervisors, we were uh, fortunate to be able to pass some campaign reform laws. You know, we do have some public financing, you know, with matching funds. Mm -hmm. Believe me, the, the, the resistance is cutthroat, though. Um, you know, the only way we're going to get there is you know, something like this uh, initiative, uh, you know, which will allow us not to turn into money machines but to actually pay attention. In Sacramento, uh, there's this practice of taking a walk, and it's believed by many cynics, like me, that when a legislator decides to take a walk on, on an important vote, that it has to do with money, either money they're hoping to get or money that they've already gotten. It, it, it's true. We're, we're, we're horribly tainted by the current system. Um, you know, I, I did work on campaign reform uh, 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 financing uh, as a supervisor in San Francisco, and we did we we were lucky we did get some support there for public financing. Uh, but it, it is an asthma to those heavyweights. I mean, certainly the um, recent Supreme Court uh, ruling was really uh, egregious. Uh, you know that lifted uh, restrictions that people like to hide behind uh, the concept of free speech, but they're actually abusing uh, uh, that very treasured concept and. Uh, what I see throughout the system is uh, even good people who are highly motivated in and around uh, social justice issues, et cetera, 
uh, eventually being uh, bought out or intimidated. Uh, I think we all have to realize that this is not about us. It's a privilege. Uh, you know, I'm honored to be elected, uh, even if the Sacramento legislature is as dysfunctional as possible, because I, I feel that people need to hear uh, different voices. But you stifle those voices. Uh, I mean, talking about free speech uh, and people's true feelings, uh, you know, when they're blinded by the checkbook. And, uh, you know, we've tried a few times here in California uh, to rectify that. Uh, you know, the more bipartisan, uh, the better. Uh, uh, in and that. I mean, I remember the, nationally there's the Feingold-McCain bill. Uh, but the, the special interests keep blocking us from that fruition. But I, I say that the American people, uh, and I know here in California, are, get, are getting tired of it. And the more we can educate them and the more we can sponsor and weigh in on, on initiatives uh, like this, uh, the clean elections, uh, you know, the more progress we're going to make. Now we're gonna... Otherwise, it, takes, it, does, it does take the process in a way that, uh, you know, sometimes it's frightening. Yeah. We're going to talk with Trent Lang from the uh, Fair Elections Coalition in our next segment. So we'll get the details on Proposition 15 from him. But, but, Tom, l- let me just ask you what, what it would mean, what kind of a difference it would make. This Prop 15 is a pilot project, and if it's successful, it might be rolled out to every level of state elective office. But what would it mean? Can you give us uh, a couple of ideas of specific legislation that is bottled up because of money in politics, and that if, if, if the candidates and the incumbents didn't have to raise money from these uh, well-heeled interest groups, that uh, the process would be different, and legislatively we'd see different results. I think that, first of all, you see a, um, a difference of character of who gets elected. But sometimes it's big money gets people elected, uh, you know, who are very uh, 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 beholden to the money that got them elected. And then secondly, here in Sacramento, we recently had a oil severance tax uh, you know, we're the only state in the union that does not have one. Yeah. Uh, with the billions and billions of dollars of Chevron, et cetera, even Sarah Palin, for God's sake, they have a <laughs> oil severance tax. She wrote it on her hand. Uh, <laughs> in Alaska, and California doesn't have it, and it just it broke my heart. I was so demoralized to see Democrats as well as Republicans either stay off, you know, as you mentioned, take a walk, or vote no. And that could have garnered us, I don't know how many millions of dollars so that we don't have to close, you know, uh, uh, health clinics and, and, and delay infrastructure that, that's integral to a community. So, I mean, that, that's one that jumps out. There, there are many more. PG&E, one of the major utility companies, has uh, outspends, uh, every time, outspends every year any attempts, for instance, in San Francisco to have public power. Yeah. You know, there should be no profit involved in providing heat and light. But every year, you know, it's millions and millions and millions and all kinds of uh, hit pieces, and uh, we never quite, even in a liberal city like San Francisco, we never quite beat the bar so that we can establish public power, even though, you know, it polls well, most people believe it, but, you know, coming against the, up against those megabucks has, uh, has not always been successful. Well, and Tom, would you agree that uh, part of the the breakdown in Sacramento is linked to the fear that your Republican colleagues have 
that if they vote for any tax, any, any, any tax increase, that Governor Norquist, Grover Norquist, will take them out in a recall at the next opportunity. That's, yeah, that's like a, part of this like abuse. A, yeah, it's like a cult. It's like with the underdo, under Papa Doc in, in Haiti when they had the Tonton Macoon. It really, it really it, it's a, you know, you have to swear allegiance, you know, and then give your firstborn. And, you know, that's not democracy. That, that, that actually is a form of, of fascism. Uh, you know, and the other thing is not all of us are born with uh, silver spoons in our mouth, so there's a lot of us, uh, you know, who are smarter, who are dedicated, but we don't have the financial wherewithal that is sometimes, you know, uh, demanded. And so that keeps uh, women out, minorities out, and those who are, you know, kind of endemically at the lower end of the economic scale. Uh, and so it perpetuates the system uh, that is highly undemocratic. Uh, it certainly uh, addresses class, uh, you know, because those who usually have the avenues uh, to finding uh, big donors and big sponsors and then to be owned by them, uh, you know, also don't necessarily have the social standing. Then if they do, then they, they actually become indentured. And, you know, and that, that, that is very cycling to the democratic process. You know, you know the old joke, the best politician that money can buy. Yeah. That's, you know, it's not a joke. It ain't funny. I, I see it happen a lot. And it's very, very, very disturbing. And Tom, can you cite a recent example, and you don't have to name names if you prefer not to, but the, the way they use the muscle of money to intimidate uh, a sitting legislator, and this is going to get even worse with this new Supreme Court decision, because a corporate interest won't even have to spend the money, they'll just threaten to, and it will cause a, an average uh, elected official to be intimidated. What kind yeah. of, of money-based intimidation attempts have been made against you? For me, it only happened once. It was a long time ago when I first ran for office. Um, a representative of the infamous PG&E, very nice, kind of benign, nevishy guy, invited me to have coffee and basically said, uh, you know, if you buy into our program, you uh, we, we will raise 35000 which was a lot of money in those days, like in 1989. Uh, 30, we can host a fundraiser, raise 35000 for you. And, uh, you know, basically you'll be ours. You know, we, we will clamp you to our bosom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I said, well, you know, I'm kind of, I'm gay. I'm kind of discriminatory about what bosom's up <laughs> and raised to. But more than that, no. You know, I think, you know, frankly, I think BG, BG&E is a, is a corrupt organization. You know, that's my take. And he said, well, all right, then we will do the same thing for one of your opponents and raise that money for them. And that, that was about the closest. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I had kind of established myself uh, even before I entered the electoral realm. Uh, I, I don't get hit that much. You know, occasionally there'll be, uh, you know, a check written for uh, uh, a nominal amount. And, uh, you know, uh, accepting it still bothers me, so I, re- I return them. But, you know, my colleagues who aren't as experienced or seasoned or have been through the wars, you know, sometimes you can be threatened like that and bullied. And you still win your election? Well, you know that gives you great a great leg up if you know what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah, I live I live through it. But with, with term limits, which by the way probably came about through big money interest. Yep. With term limits, people don't get to establish themselves. Know that you can stick to your principles and still win. Um, so you know, the, the whole thing is a, what we used to call a bummer. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm just I'm I'm happy that we we have this trust, you know, to to clean it up. And uh, certainly I'm going to be championing this initiative 
uh, very strongly, as I have done previously. That's Proposition 15. It'll be in the June primary ballot, and uh, it'll be right next to PG&E's bought-and-paid-for initiative, number 16. They've spent... that nice. <laughs> They've spent $6 million already to uh, yes. qualify the initiative, and they're yes. doing it to try to to block what is happening here in, in Marin County, where I live, where we are setting up our own independent uh, electricity utility. City aggregation. Yes. City aggregation. And it's I worked on that. I worked in that, uh, you know, 14 years ago and got uh, digged into uh, authors of legislation, and PG&E then thought, I guess they were asleep at the wheel, Know, counting the counting the money, they said, "Oh well, you know, uh, this won't be harmful." So they didn't really lobby or write the checks as much, right. and uh, it passed. And now they realize that you know it's going to infringe on uh, their profits, and of course, is a great step towards public power. I had to get that in, you know, yeah. and uh, and so they're trying to pull the carpet out from under it and disenfranchise the different uh, disenfranchise people. And, and it's one of the most anti-democratic tech tactics that we've seen, and it's, it's been used here in California before, notably with Prop 13. But the ballot measure only requires a majority to pass it, but it imposes right. a supermajority requirement in every community in the state that might want to set up a, a community uh, utility system. And yeah, this, very, this very is really repressive. pernicious. It's, and very, very repressive and uh, duplicitous. Uh, we feel it's illegal, you know, uh, based on the language of the, of the Migden legislation. But, of course, you know, they pay their lawyers uh, a hell of a lot more than we'll ever see in our lifetime. So they, you know, they keep uh, challenging, you know, the correct interpretation. We're going to have a hearing on it next Thursday, because if you qualify for the ballot in June, you have to have a hearing on the initiative. And so the troops are going to turn out, you know, to at least try to out PG&E about what this is really about, which is their portfolio, their, their shareholders, um, you know, and they're, they're also attempting to greenwash, as you know, you know, all of a sudden they're interested in solar and, and alternative fuels, well, that's so that they can well, you know, edge their profits as the, well. The other bizarre case that they make is that uh, they're concerned about the, the fiscal impact of a failed community utility system in Marin County, and this is the utility that wrote its own legislation and then took itself into bankruptcy. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, you know, they'll, they'll go to any any ludicrous, uh, uh, you know, a, a template to, to try to prove their point. You know, uh, here in Sacramento, we have SMUD. We have a municipal utility district, and they went to court and battled PG&E for years before they won. And it, it, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm envious because we want this in San Francisco, but, you know, we've lost every uh, every ballot measure. But I, I, I get a utility bill here, you know, for $13. Just amazing, uh, and we and we uh, we don't have it statewide, and we don't have it even in progressive cities. Uh, and so, you know, PG&E, in a sense, is a worthy opponent because they are totally amoral. They're 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 morally bankrupt. Talk about bankruptcy, and you know, they'll go to any any means to, to, to as I said, disenfranchise the people. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, it was good talking to you, Tom. And, uh, thank you for your time today. And just thirty seconds, if if I can put a bug in your ear. I know we need to cut the prison's budget in California, and cutting health care is only going to anger the courts that have ordered improvements there because inmates have been dying. Please take a look at over 10,000 life prisoners. Most of them are over the age of 60. They do not repeat offend, and that's the population that we should be releasing, not younger, not younger people who are much more prone to reoffend. Amen, brother. And I just 
signed on. I'm, I'm a joint author with uh, uh, Assemblywoman Lowenthal about that uh, very particular issue about medical leave for older and, and incapacitated um, uh, incapacitated prisoners. So you see great minds think alike. All right, Tom Amiano, right. thanks for your time today. All right, thank you. Talk to you soon. He's an Assemblyman who represents San Francisco in the legislature in Sacramento. And in our next segment, we'll talk with Trent Lang about the details of Proposition 15 here on the Peter B. Collins Show. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. Simply click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com and you qualify for a special introductory offer. In a moment, Trent Lang will join us to talk about Proposition 15 in California to bring us clean elections. But first, this important message. Following is paid propaganda from the committee to vote yes on no with major funding from whining fat cats, trust fund yuppies, and PR firms with very flexible ethics. If you're like me, you're tired of being blasted on the radio and the TV with heavy-handed, one-sided political commercials. Our committee is sponsoring a write-in ballot proposition for this November's election that'll let you say no to agitprop from big oil, big booze, big business, and big mouth political consultants. It's Proposition Zero, the proposition to end all future propositions. When you go into the voting booth, just write in Proposition Zero. Then vote yes on the no proposition proposition. Your yes vote will say no to the tactics of distortion, lies, insinuendo, and personal attack. Your yes vote means no more tricky counter-propositions from the industries threatened by other propositions on the same ballot. Your yes vote means no more fees to corporate law firms trying to rewrite the laws to suit their deep pocket clients. And your yes vote means no more insulting radio and TV ads with bad dialogue. If you're the kind of voter who answers no opinion when the pollsters call, Proposition Zero will fully protect your constitutional right to have no opinion and keep it to yourself. So forget everything else you've heard and just say no to it all. Vote yes on Proposition Zero. Trent Lang joins us now. He is a proponent of Proposition 15 here in California. Trent, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Peter. And uh, that Proposition Zero is actually a flashback to the uh, early 1990s. And things have not changed very much in the electoral process here in California. But you're on the verge here, if voters approve Proposition 15, of putting us on a path away from big money, away from corruption and influence that uh, goes well beyond uh, the pale. Tell us a little bit about Prop 15 and how it would work, Trent. Absolutely. We're really excited to have Proposition 15 on the ballot uh, with the goal being to change the way we finance election campaigns so politicians can stay focused on the job we elect them to accomplish. Um, it starts out uh, as a uh, pilot project for the Office of Secretary of State to provide public financing to Secretary of State candidates so that they do not have to go out hat in hand raising uh, big money donations for their campaigns. Um, and this is one of the most important offices, of course, because the Secretary of State guards the very integrity of our elections and is the referee of our elections. The way it works is it's modeled after very successful laws in Maine and Arizona, where candidates have to show a broad base of support by gathering a large number of small contributions from voters. 
in, in the case of Proposition 15, 7,500 $5 contributions and signatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gets them qualified, and then they have to uh, start agreeing to all the restrictions. They will get public funds in, in for their campaign as long as they agree to strict spending limits, uh, that they are banned from raising money from any private uh, source, lobbyists, their clients, or anybody else, um, after they've uh, after they've qualified, and that that includes, uh, say, my eBay fortune, right? I can't use my own money to uh, fund a campaign. Absolutely not. If you if you choose to use this system, you you can give five dollars to help qualify yourself, but that's that's it. Wow. Uh, so it's 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 pretty strict. But the idea is that all candidates will then get a, a reasonable amount of money for their campaigns, the same the same amount. They get uh, basically the same amount as uh, uh, Secretary of State Deborah Bowen ran in her her campaigns. If they are uh, attacked, if they are, if if somebody from eBay or any place else runs <laughs> against them and and spends more uh, than them, then they get matching funds on a dollar for dollar basis to respond, so that there's a level uh, a level playing field there. Um, and if they're attacked by outside groups, independent expenditures, they also get uh, matching funds to to respond. Oh, really? Now yes. that that's a very important factor given the recent Roberts Court Supreme Court decision. Absolutely. The, 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 it's a, that was a really horrible decision, uh, unleashing the floodgates of, of corporate money at the federal level in terms of, of how much money they can spend on, on campaigns. And it highlights, though, that the only real solution is public financing of campaigns. And that's what Proposition 15 would, would bring. You have to give uh, uh, candidates who, who um, aren't bought off or aren't friends of corporations or any other wealthy special interests a chance to to run real campaigns and get their word out and to to respond uh, reasonably to to uh, corporations or anybody else who's trying to defeat them. Uh, this this is really important and it really could ultimately change the landscape. Uh, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air, my only complaint is that you have to take it step by step. Uh, this ballot measure would only authorize a pilot program for 2014 and 2018, and it is limited to the single office of Secretary of State. Now, I agree with you that because the Secretary of State is the chief election officer in the state, that that's a great place to start. Um, if it passes, is there any way we could accelerate the uh, expansion of this to all office holders in California? Um, absolutely. This the whole idea of a pilot project is to is to show that people want it and to show that it that it works. And there'll be you know the the idea is that we believe that all all uh, 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 politicians should be out of the fundraising game. So it started it started with single pilot projects in in other states. Uh, and, and then it has expanded. North Carolina, for instance, started with, with just judges. Then they expanded it uh, uh, to a, a couple of cities and also to their Office of Insurance Commissioner. Uh, we would certainly anticipate being able to, uh, to expand it, um, especially the, the, bigger, the bigger yes vote we get, the more of a mandate uh, the people of California can show that they want to change the way we finance elections. They're sick and tired of the current corrupting system. Now, one of the ironies here is, and, and let me just tell you a quick story. I got fired from a radio station in San Francisco because I was trying to set up a political action committee whose purpose would be to end the use of political action committees. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the corporate owners of the radio station said, no, no, we've got our own pack, we like it, and uh, you're out of here. Uh, but what I can already see lining up here is that they're going to outspend you. 
they being the established incumbent politicians, the career politicians, and the big money interests. And they're going to have TV commercials that will, uh, you know, just carpet the state uh, in the month or so before the June primary. And they're going to come up with lines like, can you believe it? Politicians want you, the taxpayers, to pay for their election campaigns. (laughs) As if the interests that are opposing Prop 15 should be able to pay for those election campaigns and then buy the legislation or stop legislation that they don't like. So uh, do you have enough money to run a good media campaign to persuade voters that Prop 15 is better than uh, letting the fat cats control us? Well, absolutely. They're going to they're going to come out come out swinging. Uh, they do not want this change. They know that it will take away away their power. We've already seen uh, the Institute for Governmental Advocates uh, file three different lawsuits trying to get it kicked off the ballot. Uh, they they failed each time. The courts have said that it's that it's going to go forward. Um, the good thing is that the public is really sick of the current system, and our our polling shows a a, a recent poll of June, uh, uh, likely voters showed that voters supported this by nearly a three-to-one margin. Really? So we start in a very good place. We also have a very strong, it's going to be a, a grassroots campaign to a, to a very large degree, and uh, uh, a grassroots and coalition campaign. Um, that's how it got put on the ballot in the first place. Uh, regular people demanded that the legislature and the governor put it on the ballot. Um, there's a, a, a fabulous kickoff event in uh, San Francisco coming coming this, this Sunday at the San Francisco Main Public Library from one to three. Um, we're trying to get as many people to to give five dollars to the campaign for Proposition 15 as possible, five dollars or more, of course, to help to help fight against those to show the press and the public that though we're definitely not going to have the most amount of money, we can show that we have the most supporters who want to change. Uh, change this this broken system. Now, Trent, I'm at your website, which is a simple uh, address, yesfairelections.org, That's, uh, and it'll be in the show file at peterbcollins.com, uh, yesfairelections.org, and I've just clicked on the donate page here, and let me see, is there, there's a $5 option. Uh, while we're speaking right now, I'm going to transfer $5 from my PayPal account. Uh, can I use PayPal? Um, actually, you can't use PayPal, but you can use any credit, uh, any credit card. Okay. All right. Well, uh, you have my pledge here. Uh, I'm going to contribute my $5 and try to set example for others to do the same. And uh, you are able to accept contributions up to $1,000 uh, if people are in a position to do that. Absolutely, and, and, and even more. Our goal is to get 7,500 people to give at least $5, which is... Uh, that's the number of people that were required to give the Secretary of State the public financing, so they're free of, of big money politics. But, of course, we're not running for Secretary of State, so we're not limited to $5. Uh, and, and we will definitely need, need the support to, to fight against the, the lobbyists and special interest opposition. Yeah. And, Trent, uh, what groups are backing you on this campaign? The co-chairs of the of the committee. We have very strong co-chairs of the ballot committee. Uh, California Clean Money Campaign. That's my organization. Uh, California Common Cause. The League of Women Voters of California, and the California Nurses Association, because they see that they're never going to get serious uh, health care reform until we end the dominance of big money on politics. Yeah. Well, they're doing a lot of great work at uh, CNA, and Michael Lighty, their uh, political director, is a very bright guy. Absolutely. So uh, I, I really appreciate that they are joining forces with you. 
Again, your website, yesfairelections.org. Trent Lang, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Vote yes on 15. Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments are always welcome. Email peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.